In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teaching. Implant in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee belongs all glory, together with your unoriginate Father, and your all-holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Okay. So the purpose of today and at least next week, and depending on, on how much more we would like to know, the purpose of at least the next couple of weeks is to look at how the Orthodox Church uses the Old Testament. Father John did a fa fantastic job of talking about the scriptures from an Orthodox perspective. He gave a great overview. If you would like to um, listen to those talks, they're actually available on the website. You can see I've got the microphone on here. We're recording these. You can listen to those, and they're a, a fantastic uh, preparation for uh, the things that we're going to be talking about here uh, because the way to understand the scriptures period is how they are used liturgically in the Orthodox Church and one of the big reasons for that remember we take we take this book for granted the fact that we probably all have seven different copies in our house <laughs> different translations of various types uh, that are there, we take for granted that we have the book, the Bible. In the early church, for the first, in fact, 1,500 years of the church until the invention of the printing press, this book was not in everybody's home. The place where people heard the scriptures, and it literally I used that word heard on purpose because the place where they encountered the scriptures was when they were read in the church services. And so they heard the scriptures, they knew the scriptures within the context of the liturgical life of the church. Where was this text used? How was it used? How often is it used? And we can kind of look at the, the, the scriptures that are used in the lectionary and learn a whole heck of a lot about what they mean. And that goes, I think, doubly for the Old Testament. Because so much of the New Testament, we just read on a rotation, right? You look up the, the scriptures for the day, and basically, if you were to go through an entire year of reading the scriptures in the Orthodox Church, reading the lectionary reading, you would read the entirety of the New Testament within a year. Almost all of it, except for one book. Yeah. Which book? Revelation. The book of Revelation or the uh, Apocalypse. Uh, that's what you said, right, On Yeah. The, the book of Revelation would be the only one that we, that we don't read in the lectionary um, readings, and we can talk about why not uh, another time. But the Old Testament is not used as frequently, but when it is used, it should pop out and should say to us, this has got to be special. There's something important about this text. There's something that is happening here. And so how we use the Old Testament liturgically is extraordinarily important. So... On your handy-dandy little sheet there, and actually you're going to get another one here in a minute, but I didn't want to distract you with a different one before it was needed. On your sheet there, you'll see where the Old Testament is most commonly found in the worship of the church. We just sang Vespers. The Old Testament is there in Vespers. Can someone tell me what that 
first psalm is that we recite in, in Vespers? Depends on, on the numbering. 103. Psalm 103, which is, bless, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul. Lord, my God, thou art very great, clothed with honor and majesty. Covers thyself with light as with a garment. Those, the, that prayer. There's also the Lord I've cried verses, right? We have the psalms that are used in the worship of, of the church in particular, in Vespers. And Judy, you mentioned, you said that that psalm is about creation. And that's really the purpose of, of that psalm. It's about creation and, and it's great. Um, the, during daily Vespers especially, the doors are closed and the priest is standing in front of those doors as those prayers, as the psalm is being read as if we are standing before the doors of the kingdom of heaven, waiting for them to be opened and asking for God to, to help us and to open those doors for us. It's really a, a beautiful thing. So the Psalms are used throughout Vespers. Orthros. The Psalms are used in Orthros. I'm not gonna ask you to name the, the Psalm numbers simply because I don't think I could name the Psalm numbers. Uh, but there are six particular psalms at the very beginning of the Orthros service that are extraordinarily important, correct? Uh, and in fact, there's a, a tradition in the church where during those, those six psalms of the Orthros, that those six psalms are the psalms that will be read when we are standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And so how do you think you would be if you were standing before the judgment seat of Christ? Still. Yeah, you'd be still, you'd be paying attention, you would be praying fervently as much as is, as is possible. And so there's a tradition in the Orthodox Church uh, that during those six psalms, we try to stay as still as we can so that we are focusing, so that we are paying attention. Um, we are, are attempting to do that as much as possible. Now, we can be practical about that as well. Uh, but it is something that is good for us to, to think about when those psalms are being read, that we are attempting to, to focus and pay attention as much as we can because, again, the tradition of the church is that those, are the six, those psalms will be read uh, when we are standing before the judgment. So those are the Orthros psalms. Now the hours. When I say the hours, do you all know what that means when I say the hours? First hour, third hour, sixth hour... Ninth hour, what are those hours? What's first hour? 6 a.m. Yes, 6 a.m. Around 6 a.m. <laughs> Sun up, right? So in Byzantine time, they didn't have a watch, and so they, you know, it was okay about sunup, 6 a.m. About that time is what we kind of classify as, as first hour. But there are punctuated times during the day where we do prayers, first hour, sixth, third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour. And in each of those, there are particular psalms that are set to be used. And so during the course of the day, reading the hours, there are psalms which are great because they match up with the timing of the day. Uh, talking about early morning things at first hour and afternoon things at night at ninth hour, the demon of noonday and, and things like that. So the Psalms are used in the, the course of our worship of the hours. Compline, what is compline? Evening. Evening. Sunset, Vespers is really sunset. And then after sunset, 
kind of that in-between time before midnight because then there's also the midnight office. So there's all kinds of times for prayer uh, that we have in the Orthodox Church. We use the Psalms. Okay, so in each of those, you've, heard, you've seen that the Old Testament, the big place that we have the use of the Old Testament in the, the liturgical life of the church are the Psalms. The Psalms are the prayer book of the church. And because of all those things where you have 1st, 3rd, 6th, ninth, Compline, Vespers, Orthros, Psalms being used in the early church, it was a requirement for everyone who was ordained as a, as a bishop to actually know the Psalms by heart, to be able to recite the Psalter just without looking at anything. And, and really the idea of that is if they're participating in the full liturgical life of the church, they're hearing the Psalms over and over and over again. And if you've been uh, in Matins, if you're faithfully in Orthros for 10 years and you hear those six Psalms, you'll probably know them by heart. <laughs> so we think of this as a great accomplishment for all those early people, but really they were just doing what they were doing, learning the Psalms as they were there. So the Psalms, that should tell us that the book of the Psalms is an extraordinarily important place to, for us to look in the Old Testament. Now, I didn't have Father Hopko when I was in seminary, Father, the late Father Thomas Hopko, but I was told that what he used to do in his dogmatics class, he would take the book of the Psalms, he would open it up, he would point to a psalm, and he'd have one of the students read, and then he would explain to them how Christ was in that psalm. From 1 to 150, every single psalm is about Christ. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That's Christ. Okay, so you can go through each of the Psalms and find Christ. And so the Psalms are one of the most important books to look at in the Old Testament, the section of the scripture to look at, very, very important in the life of the church. Yes? He wrote a children's book, which is checked out, it's in the library, called Christ in the Old Testament. Wonderful. So Christ in the Old Testament, uh, a children's book, probably good for all of us adults as well. And then there's Father Patrick Reardon's book, Christ in the Psalms, which actually is a one-page reflection that shows how Christ is in, in, is in each psalm. And so that's, that's not a book that you sit and go through front to back, but that you read maybe one a day, I think Father Patrick suggests in the, the, the foreword of that book. So the psalms are the extraordinarily important for us to know as Orthodox Christians. Okay, the other great big place where the Old Testament is used is the Lenten lectionary. In the regular lectionary reading, you're going to have what? Just throughout the rest of the regular year outside of Lent. What do we normally have in the lectionary? New Testament, an epistle reading, one of the letters of Paul, Peter, Jude, James, John, and then one of the gospel readings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of the gospels we'll see a few times during the year, right? During Great Lent, the regular lectionary, Monday through Friday, weekends it's still a, an epistle and a gospel, Monday through Friday in the regular lectionary of the church, you'll see these three Old Testament books, Genesis, Isaiah, and Proverbs. And so along with the Psalms, this is a great trigger for you to say those three books are exceptionally important for us to know and for us to understand. 
Can anybody have any guesses about why Genesis is important for us to know? Why is it important for us to know Genesis? I would assume about the creation. Okay, it starts with being about creation. So we have the creation of the whole world. We have the creation of ourselves as, as human persons. What else happens? Yeah, Sue. First prophecies about Christ, what do you mean by that? Okay, so at the, immediately at the fall, you have um, the, uh, a reference, a type that points to Christ, about how he shall bruise your, your, um, your head and he will uh, bruise your heel. Okay, and so that's a reference to, to Christ uh, in that case. Okay. What other stories are in the book of Genesis? I'm sorry, Irina, what? what? Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank God. So from the very beginning, we look as Christians at the first chapters of Genesis and we see the Trinity. Okay. Throughout the book of Genesis, you also have stories like Noah. Okay, you have Abraham, the faithfulness of Abraham. You have this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, uh, who's there with Abraham. He shows up only in one place in the book of Genesis, and then he's in the Psalms a couple of times, who is, uh, we, we would say he's a, a, a type of Christ in the scriptures. You also have the people... Uh, the story of Isaac, Rebecca. You have Joseph, who goes into Egypt, and the story of, of, of his uh, faithfulness and uh, his encouragement to the rest of his family. And so you have this, this start of the lineage of Christ, the start of our salvation, that even from the very beginning, as Sue says, from the moment, really from the moment of creation, our salvation is already in mind. And so we look at the book of Genesis as that starting point, that beginning place where we are reading about the ancestors of Christ, where we're reading about really how the world began and how we are to understand ourselves created in the image and likeness of God. We learn about what sin is. We learn about how sin works and, and how it affects us and how the Lord continues to reach into this world and bless us uh, throughout all of our lives. So Genesis is a very, very important place for us to, to look and very good for us to know. Isaiah. Why Isaiah? What is Isaiah? Prophet. Yeah, it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy about Christ. Absolutely. And so you have places in Isaiah where we've just read at, at Christmas, places where a virgin will conceive and bear a child. All of that is in the, the uh, prophecy of Isaiah. You have the great vision in Isaiah where Isaiah sees the, the Lord on the throne and you have the, the seraphim and you have holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts and you have the charcoal that is taken from the altar that is placed onto Isaiah's tongue. And so you have um, these great references that, that reflect the liturgical life of the church. And then the particular prophecies about Christ, uh, most commonly referred to as the suffering servant, 
Christ as the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, all of that is throughout the prophecy of Isaiah. And so Isaiah is a wonderful, important book for us to know. And so read, know the book of Isaiah, Genesis, Isaiah. And what about Proverbs? The wisdom, the wisdom, a lot of practical insight and practical advice from the book of Proverbs. It's the, the uh, great wisdom literature of the church. And so we have um, the history, we have the prophecy, and then we also have these very practical, helpful things for us to know in the book of Proverbs. And so along with the Psalms, I'd say the other three most important books for us to know in the Old Testament as, as Christians are Genesis, Isaiah, and Proverbs. And that's not to discount anything else that's in the Old Testament, but that, again, remember, the people were only hearing the scriptures that were presented in the church. You can only have so much given to you at one particular time, and the church fathers said these are the most important things for us to know. The book of Psalms, Genesis, Isaiah, and Proverbs. Okay, yes? Sometimes we read from the wisdom of Solomon, mm -hmm. and I guess I can kind of be lumped with Proverbs, but there are some beautiful passages where we read from it on the uh, uh, translation of the relics of John Chrysostom, talking about wisdom, and, and, and I saw her for my bride, and, and mm -hmm. The wisdom of Solomon is, is used uh, very much, very much. Um, and that falls into the next category, Vespers on Major Feasts. So the, the Lent, that's okay, that's great. Good transition here, Judy. Uh, the Lenten lectionary has Genesis, Isaiah, and Proverbs. And then the next place where we get kind of the best, the highlights of the Old Testament are Vespers of Major Feast Days. And so Vespers... I guess for the translation of the relics of John Chrysostom has Old Testament readings. All the 12 major feast days of the church have Old uh, Testament readings, uh, readings connected to um, what the feast means. And that's really where we're kind of headed today and the next, uh, for the next couple of weeks, is looking at some of these texts that we use on great feast days and say, why in the world do we read that text on that day? It doesn't seem to connect at all. But it does, because the church is great. And the Wisdom of Solomon is one of the mo more common ones that, that we, do, we do read from, right? So how are texts chosen? How are they pulled out? The Old Testament is about two-thirds of this book, right? So there's a whole lot in the Old Testament. How do they choose which, which things are read on each, each of those days if they are having to go through all of this. And believe me, the fathers of the church knew this book better than any of us will probably ever know it. One of the big things, uh, the Orthodox Church talks about typology. Typology. And I have that definition there. It's a type of biblical exegesis, which is just a big word for interpretation, biblical interpretation, where events and figures in the Old Testament are seen as types or prefigurings of New Testament figures or events. I mentioned Melchizedek. Uh, he's in the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis. Do you know what happens with Melchizedek? Where, where does he pop up? Why does he pop up? In that, that 18th chapter, do you yeah, know? It's, a, it's after a victory that Abraham had over some of the other kings in the area. And then Melchizedek comes, um, the king of Salem, 
I remember he brings bread and wine um, in, in, his offer, in his offering, that he's a, a priest of the Most High God. Exactly, exactly. So Melchizedek is, has two descriptors. He's the king of Salem. What does Salem mean? Peace. peace. He's the king of peace, and he's a priest of the Most High God. So he's a king, and he's a priest. We talk about Christ in those two ways, as king and as priest. Abraham sees Melchizedek, and he gives him a tithe of everything that he has. So Abraham basically treats Melchizedek as God because you offer the Lord a tithe, nobody else. And so this Melchizedek, who's king of peace, prince of the most high God, receives a tithe from Abraham. And Abraham is given by Melchizedek bread and wine. What does that make you think of? Mm. Of course, the Eucharist. It's the Eucharist. And so we look at Melchizedek as a type of Christ. And so we, we hear that verse in the Psalms, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in Hebrews, Christ is even said to be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And so there's this connection, this typology that is used in, in our interpretation of the scripture, scripture. And I have a verse here from St. Paul. We're not the only ones who use typology, uh, but St. Paul does as well in his book, Romans. Um, Adam, would you read that quote from Romans there? Okay. Starts, nevertheless. Yes. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who have not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. That's right. And so Christ, or Paul even says that Adam is a type of Christ. Christ is the new Adam, as we talk about. And we're going to have a there particular section uh, either next week or the week after on Mary, specifically Mary in the Old Testament. And she's oftentimes called by some of the fathers the new Eve. So Christ is the new Adam. Mary is the, the new Eve. So he's a, a type. So one of the big reasons that we choose readings is because of typology, things like typology. Okay. The other thing is simply themes. Uh, on Theophany, a couple weeks ago, there were 13 Old Testament readings. All of them were about water. In some way, shape, or form, every single one of them was about water. Um, somebody crossing the Jordan River, Joshua crossing the Jordan River with the people into the Promised Land, um, Elijah, when he pours water all over the altar and asks for flames to, be, to come down. That was one of the readings. Um, water coming out of the rock. Um, and even Gideon's dewy fleece was a, a, uh, uh, in there. So ever, all these water-themed readings were, were there uh, chosen for the Feast of Theophany. God using water, God working through water. And it's great for us to remember that as we are blessing water and things like that on the Feast of Theophany. All right. Finally, the texts help us to interpret the scriptures. Interpreting the scriptures is something that is exceptionally hard. It is difficult to interpret the scriptures. If you read a scripture and you don't understand what it is saying, you are not alone. <laughs> you are not deficient. It is okay 
to come and ask for help about that. Marshall, will you read that first quote under interpretation? Sure. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay. And so Peter, in his epistle, his second epistle there, uh, talks about prophecy needing to be interpreted by holy men of God moved by the Holy Spirit. That, that those prophecies were, were spoken by holy men um, who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And thus we need help interpreting exactly what it is that those prophecies mean. A virgin shall conceive and give birth. We don't know what that means unless we see it through the eyes of the church and we point to Christ. We take for granted that we know what it means, but if you were a 200 B.C. Jew reading that scripture, just like Simeon when he translated that scripture, in the, as Father John talked about during his um, classes about how Simeon, when he translated that section, wondered how in the world would this be true, a virgin conceiving? And an angel comes and says, don't worry, you'll see it before you die. <laughs> and he did see it in Christ. But he didn't know what it meant when he was first interpreting it. He needed the grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the, prop, the, the scriptures are given to us in particular places so that we can properly interpret them as best as, as we're able. Trent, can you read that uh, second quote there? Or is that one too long? Sometimes you don't like that. <laughs> That's pretty long. You can do it. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Peter, Paul, sorry, according to the wisdom given to him, as written to you, as also in all his epistles, taking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Okay, so Peter, as Father John mentioned this in his class, Peter is calling the writings of Paul scripture, which is huge, and that, that's a huge thing, because what he means by the rest of the scriptures is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, those books. He's talking about the Old Testament when he's talking about that. And so we all, we can look at the scriptures and we can think that they might mean one thing when actually they mean something a little bit different. And we need the help and the guidance of the church to understand them so that we do not twist them to our own destruction. Not because we're being malicious, but just because we don't understand. And it's okay for us to not understand. That's why we come and we uh, draw nearer to Christ, draw closer to Christ, draw closer to one another so that we can understand what this picture is that the Lord is attempting to, to show us of himself. And with that, Judy, can you read that last quote there? Rearrange the gems and so fit them together as to make them in the form of a dog or a fox. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, do you know what he's talking about there? You know a mosaic? Mosaics are those little things of, made of colored tiles and things. So you have a picture of a king, and then somebody takes those same tiles and rearranges them to be something that's completely different. And so that's what St. Irenaeus is talking about. Do you know when St. Irenaeus is writing? Good guess, but even earlier than that. 200s. He's writing in the third century in the 200s. And so it's even before this book is this book. And he is saying, be careful. Be careful. And that's why he writes about it in his work Against Heresies, which is a five-volume book that Irenaeus writes in the uh, third century about all the different Gnostic sects that are out there and warning the people, be careful. These things might look like they're the truth, but they are misconstrued places where we think there's the truth, but they are, it is not there, really. Okay. All right, any questions about any of that? Where the scriptures are found, how we use the scriptures in the Orthodox Church. Okay. It does mean that we don't read all of the Old Testament in the liturgical life of the church. Yes. Yes, it was developed over it was de the liturgical cycles of the church were developed over centuries. Um, for instance, the Feast of, of the Nativity of Christ is not something that is celebrated until the 4th century. We don't celebrate Christmas until the 4th century. Um, Dr. Rockus, uh, when she was here, uh, mentioned that St. John Chrysostom, in his Nativity sermon, says this feast that we've been celebrating for about 10 years. And so that the readings and things that are linked to the feast of the nativity of christ don't come about and are not finalized until somewhere in in the fourth century and maybe even a little bit later on that, than that what and so, yeah the daily lectionary that's a great question um i don't know all of the history of the lectionary readings my guess is that that doesn't become um, solidified until the 4th or 5th century since the scriptures themselves were not canonized by the church until the end of the 4th century. So then you would then have how the, especially the New Testament writings are used in the church um, laid out as concisely until the 5th, um, 6th uh, century and maybe even a little bit later than that. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing... It's an ongoing, um, fluid development over the course of time. Different, different fathers or councils? Uh, different uh, councils and fathers who laid them out in their particular usage, yes. And then it became common practice, um, which is where you have this book called the Typicon, and the Typicon is the book of the order of the church. This is the things that we do on this particular feast day and, and things like that. And so then you have those before the printing press, 
each monastery basically has one, each diocese might have one, uh, and so you have these different practices, and then they would kind of come together and be able to say, oh, here's what we all do, and then make one common practice a little bit later on. So there's even fluidity there um, that happens throughout the course of the liturgical development of, of the church, um, which I, I wish I knew more about, um, but I think there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding it simply because of lack of information and just kind of the thing where, you know, just like we say today, this is, this is just what we always do, right? Welcome to the Orthodox world. A exactly. In three years, when we do something different during the um, blessing of the Mississippi River, somebody will say, well, that's not how we've always done it. And we've only done it for a couple of years. And that, that's just how these things kind of progress. Um, I wish I had a better answer, Sue, but okay. <laughs> Any other questions about all of that? Okay, so I have a feeling that we're only going to really cover one of these. And so next week we'll, we'll look more at um, these texts that I've given you. What, I, what you have here are four Old Testament readings. And each of them are used at a different feast day of the Orthodox Church. Now most feast days of the Orthodox Church, just so you know, the Vespers service that will precede that feast day will have three Old Testament readings. Most of the time there will be three Old Testament readings. Exceptions are, of course, the 13 at Theophany that we did and the 13 or 12 that we do at, on Holy Saturday. And um, I'm pretty sure there's something like 12 or 13 at the Nativity of Christ as well. Uh, and so those feasts have a whole lot more. Most of the time you will have three Old Testament readings. So in each of these readings, just the reading is there. It doesn't tell you what feast it's from. That's written on my cheat sheet here. So what we're going to do, knowing that these texts are chosen by typology, by theme, to help us interpret what a feast is talking about. We're going to look at these readings and we're going to talk about why in the world these readings are read on these particular days. Okay, so we're going to do that this week and, and next week as well. All right, so reading number one from Genesis. I'm going to go ahead and read it if that's, that's okay with you all. Genesis 1, 1 to 13. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and separated the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. 
And God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Okay. Where, what feast is this reading read? For this one, okay, for this one, it's, uh, it's either going to, it'll be either, this may, either makes it easier or more difficult. This passage is read at three different feasts. So of the 12 major feasts, for this one, you have three possibilities that are, that are there. Somebody want to just take a guess? There are no bad guesses. Christmas and Anna got them all. And for special bonus, when is this reading read in the regular lectionary? Special bonus. Yes, the first day of Lent, the very first day of Great Lent, because it's the first chapters of, of Genesis. Okay, so this is exceptionally impressive. This is exceptionally impressive. Okay, so Nativity, Nativity, Theophany, and Pascha is when this is read. Why Nativity? How does it start with Christ? You, I've heard every answer perfectly. We'll go one by one. Sue, what did you say? In John chapter 1, it talks about everything being created by Christ. Exactly. So we have in the beginning at John chapter 1. In the beginning, we have a Genesis chapter 1. And in those, that it says that uh, all things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. And so we have Christ creating. Justin, I heard another answer, I think, from you. The beginning, okay, I want to be very careful about that part, right. saying the beginning of Christ's life, because... As far as, as human Okay, I'm going to be very careful again. And I, you are, I know where you're going, but because we're recording this, I want to be very careful about how we, how we word, word things, uh, because Christ really is beginningless. As the second person of the Trinity, he is without beginning. But we see him working here. Because we see, where do we see him working? We have God creating the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The spirit of God moving over the face of the water. So we have God the Father and the spirit already represented there. And then God does something. He says something. We say words. The word of God is apparent to us. Jesus Christ is the word of God. As Sue says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so we have this reading at the nativity of Christ because we are saying that this person who created is in the womb of Mary and being born today. And so we are pointing to the fact that it's the same person who worked at the beginning, who began his work in the beginning, 
who is without beginning, is taking on flesh on this day. And so that is one of the big things that we are doing in uh, reading this reading at the Nativity of Christ. The other readings that we have on the Nativity of Christ are prophecies, things like Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah about a virgin giving birth and things like that, um, or the Prince of Peace. Those readings are the ones that we read on um, the Feast of the Nativity. But this one is particularly there because he is the one who creates. He is the one who is born of the virgin in the cave in Bethlehem. And so that, that's why it's there. Okay, why theophany? The water theme, exactly, exactly. We have the waters that are there, and we separated. We have the Lord finding and making peace out of the chaos of the waters. And so we have the waters the, that are over the face of the deep that are there. The, that, that's chaos, and out of that... We have the dry land that appears. We have the vegetation that appears. So out of the chaos of the water comes life. And so the same thing happens with theophany. Out of the chaos of the waters comes life. Out of this place where we can drown comes everlasting life because of Christ. He touches the waters and therefore he touches the waters throughout the entire world. And so we have this water theme that happens there uh, at Theophany. So all those other readings have to do with water. And this is a, a, the place where the water starts. All right, last one. Why Holy Saturday? Why do we read this reading on Holy Saturday? It is a birth, it is a creation, it is the expression of life in the world. When does this reading end? What day is it? It's the third day. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Life coming out of the darkness. Light entering into the world and life. We have this vegetation. We have life that is being brought out upon the earth on the third day. And so we have the third day imagery here in the book of Genesis right from the very beginning. So we use this reading on Nativity, Theophany, and on Holy Saturday. Do you know what other things we read on Holy Saturday, what some of the other readings are? Think about what's happening on, on Holy Saturday. The dry bones, we have Ezekiel uh, and the dry bones coming together uh, and being the res showing the resurrection of the body. What else do we have on Holy Saturday? The entire book of Jonah. I always just chuckle when it says the reading is from the book of Jonah. The reading is not from the book of Jonah, it is the book of Jonah. We read it all because of a three days in the belly of the whale. Right, Joan is in the, in the belly of the whale for three days. Christ is in the tomb for three days. What else? One other big one that I want to point out. Before, uh, one big reading. The icon of this one is in the very back of the church. You probably never see it. The three holy youths. That's right, the three holy youths. The, where um, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the, to the fiery furnace, or Ananias, Azariah, and Misael as their name changes during that reading. So notice on Holy Saturday next year that the first part of the reading will be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the last part will be uh, Ananias, Azariah, and Misael because that reflects the, the um, Septuagint version of the scriptures, that there's the, an entire section called the, the Song of the Three Youths that is not in the Masoretic text of the Old Testament, um, which is used by most Protestants in the world, but it is in the, the older Septuagint version of, of the scriptures, this hymn of the three holy youths, where they're in the furnace giving praise and glory to God. And this is, is used there because uh, we have Christ, really Christ appearing in the fiery furnace. The Nebuchadnezzar looks and says, there's one likened to a son of man, and I thought we only threw three people in there. What is the, who is that fourth? And we look at that as a type of Christ uh, walking around in the fiery furnace with the three holy youths. So in the midst of seeming destruction, God brings life and regeneration. And so we have that Old Testament reading happening also on Great and Holy Saturday uh, in the Orthodox Church. Okay, so we're going to stop there. We're going to look at these others and uh, maybe I'll add a couple of others uh, along with it next week. And then the following week, we'll work on particularly Mary in the Old Testament. And I mean for that to be a little bit provocative because you, I want to, to, for you to think about how in the world is Mary in the Old Testament. And she's there. We look at her, we, we'll, we'll look at that uh, in a couple of weeks. But I hope that this helps you to understand how the church is using the Old Testament. It's really fun and exciting to go through these things. And so I, I hope um, we'll do this again next week. All right. Okay. Thank God.